นมัตุรัตนตยสัตว์ So today is our weekly English talk, English Dhamma talk. So tonight's talk, uh, I kind of thought that maybe we should sort of step back and look at Buddhism. <clears throat> look at the outline of what is Buddhism. Because sometimes we get caught up in the practice of meditation, simply the doing of the walking and the sitting. It can sometimes get quite arduous. Difficult to uh, to keep up, often because we don't understand why we're doing it. If we're just starting, we don't really have a sense of what is the whole, what is the big picture. And or oftentimes we practice with a set goal in mind, or we practice in a certain mindset, minds. A certain mindset, which uh, may often overlook some of the important aspects of what makes up the whole philosophy or the whole uh, idea behind what we're doing. The philosophy behind what we're doing, or the the, the big picture, is something that we call Buddhism. In Pali, the word is Buddhasasana. The, the dispensation or the we could just say the teachings of the Buddha but it really means uh, the the whole uh, culture which developed which is the central core is this way of, of meditation practice of realizing the truth for oneself and the way I'm going to approach this tonight is I'm going to look at the three objects of reference And in Buddhism, and sort of explain why it is that we revere them, and why it is important for us to keep them in mind, and to understand, to know what these things are, and, and uh, appreciate them. So the three objects of worship are the three things that we, or objects of reverence, you could say, not exactly worship. Uh, ob objects of respect in Buddhism are what we just chanted before we. Um, Before we do our prostrations and before we start the talk, uh, the three the three objects of reverence are the Buddha, his teachings, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or those people who practice his teachings. And there's a reason why we pay reverence to these things. Um, it's not because they are somehow going to the, the Buddha is going to somehow answer our prayers or. He somehow demands this worship, this level of worship, and so on. But these three things are very important for us to keep in mind. They're called the tisarana, the three uh, recollections or the three uh, mindfulnesses, if you will. Three things we have to be mindful. Or we have to think about. We have to recollect. We have to keep in mind. Sarana. In fact, the word sarana. Is the same as the word sati. It comes from the same root sar, to recollect or to remember, and so on. So when we practice mindfulness, it's to be aware of of the ultimate reality of what we're facing. When we're mindful of the Buddha, it's to remember or to to recollect uh, his good qualities. And the benefit of recollecting the Buddha's good qualities is because he was, as as we understand, he was perfect. He, his level of wisdom is something that no one could fathom, and this was how he was able to give these wonderful teachings. So, simply recollecting some of the good things about the Buddha, it kind of puts things in perspective as to um, what we understand to be the ideal uh, sort of state. It's not that we all uh, maybe aspire to become like the Buddha. In fact, many people might not know that we don't all aspire to be just like the Buddha. We consider that the Buddha to be sort of maybe more or less perfect, or in some ways perfect, or in some ways uh, uh, unordinary or extraordinary. But we also understand that an ordinary person 
It doesn't have to become just like the Buddha, just like we don't all have to be just like each other in order to become free from self, in order to realize the goal of the meditation practice. Because they say en enlightenment is of two kinds. Uh, and this is one way of explaining, you know, what is the difference between a Buddha and someone who just follows the Buddha? Or when we practice meditation, why is it that we don't have to become exactly like the Buddha? And the answer is, enlightenment, to be, enlightenment of a Buddha, to become a Buddha, you have to know everything. This is what they say about the Buddha, that anything he wanted to know, or anything he had, any time a question came up, someone asked a question, he always had the answer. They say basically he knew everything. And this seems, you know, in scientific terms, it seems quite impossible, because uh, we look at things from a finite uh, or a... a incremental point of view, we say, well, there's an infinite number of things that you could uh, you could ask a question about. So as a result, there must be an infinite number of things, an infinite number of answers, so therefore no one could possibly know everything. It's actually not that hard to understand how someone could know everything from a meditation point of view, because you come to understand what is real and what is not real. And the truth is, what is real is not that much. You know, the, the fraction of our experience that is real is in fact very little. So for instance, when we see something, what we know from science that what we're seeing is light touching the eye. We know from Buddhism that there's a mind there. You know, there are three things. There's the light, there's the eye, and there's the mind. When these things con contact, then they're seeing. Without the mind, there's no seeing. Without the eye, there's no seeing. Without the, this, the light, there's no seeing. So these three things are in some way real and more or less objective. But then guess what happens when once we see something? Well, you can figure it out right away. We're seeing something. Um, we're identifying it as a color. You know, this shade is blue. This shade is red. Uh, this is a square. This is a circle. This is, you know, we can put things together in our mind and make more of them than they actually are. This is a man, this is a woman, uh, this is a child, this is an adult, this is beautiful, this is ugly. And so before we know it, we're creating all sorts of uh, constructs about what we see to the point where I hate this, I like this, I can't stand this, and I have to get rid of this, or... Uh, I love this and I need this and I have to keep it always the way it is and not let it change. But all of these things are actually just another part of reality and that's this thinking part of reality. And in the end it all comes down to something that arises in the mind, a thought. And all of these things have the same nature of liking, of disliking, of misunderstanding the object for what it really is. Not, not realizing that it's just seeing. And so when we break down reality, it actually becomes quite easy to know everything, because there's not much that you need, there's not much that exists. You know, when it comes down, we say, uh, we say, well, we say many things about the Lord Buddha, let's, let's go through them all. But in the end, uh, the things that the Lord Buddha knew, I, I mean, you could say there's infinite number of things that he knew, but the way he knew it was that he understood the way things work. He understood the fundamental building blocks of reality. And so... And he understood it in a way that science cannot understand it, because science can only look at this one piece of reality. It can't catch the patterns in the way we can in the mind, because it doesn't, uh, it isn't able to, you know, distinguish between reality and and simple concept like the before when we thought the atom was the the building block of reality. Well, now we see it's the subatomic particles, and then we're not even sure if they exist and so on. You know, we're looking at things simply from one. Uh, point of view, we're looking at things simply from, you know, through a microscope or, or um, based on a very physical, uh, relative sort of point of view. And this is important. Many many of these things were pointed out by Einstein. Uh, we don't. Most of us don't understand what it was that Einstein taught, but part of it, a very big part of it, was that three-dimensional space, as an example, is an incomplete understanding of reality. 
that space is almost three-dimensional or something like that. And in fact, in the end, it all breaks down, and you can't really say that it's three-dimensional at all, dimensional at all, and so on. It's all relative, or there's there's some aspect of relative. I'm not clear on it myself, but there's many hints at the fact that science is in fact um, sort of running running around in circles or on a wild goose chase or so on. But let's let's look closer at what are the things, uh, what are the wonderful qualities of the Lord Buddha? Because the point here is is not just to revere and think, wow, what a, what a wonderful person. It's to sort of get an idea of where we're headed. Because even though we might not come to know everything, uh, we might. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't finish that. The enlightenment of the Buddha is to know everything. Even we may not uh, reach that point, but we can reach the second type of enlightenment, and that is to let go of everything. And you don't need to know everything to let go of everything. These are two different things. In order to let go of everything, you have to understand really just one thing. You know, because once you get it about one thing, you know, you're sitting there and you're watching the stomach rise and fall, or you're watching the pain, and you're saying to yourself, pain, pain, and as your mind sort of gets it about the pain, that it's just pain, that it's impermanent, it's changing all the time, that it's unsatisfying, there's no way you can make it perfect, that it's you're never going to have any pain, and three, that you can't control it. This is why it's unsatisfying. You can't make it otherwise than what it is. When you sort of get this in the final, in the final moment, you let go of it, and anything else that arises, you've got the same understanding about it because they all have the same nature. What you get about the the, the pain, for instance, is that it arises and therefore it has to cease, and so you don't hold on to it as permanent, as satisfying, as under any kind of control. And anything else that arises, you you you've got the same. Uh, inferential knowledge, you know, it's arisen. Well, it, it has to cease. I mean, it's just a—it's a very simple rule of reality, but it's something that we don't get deep in our hearts. We can intellectualize about it, but if we haven't practiced, it, it's more or less meaningless. So anyway, these are the two kinds of enlightenment. But we don't expect to to know everything. But you see, the thing about the Buddha—he knew everything, and he let go of everything. So we look at him, and we look at him as sort of the ideal that we're aspiring at least partially to. And we get this feeling in our heart of, of, of real confidence in what we're doing because it's such a pure state. And there's really nothing you could say about the Buddha, you know, he was to this or he was to that. You might say, well, that's just, a, uh, he probably wasn't this, he, you know, they say he was knew everything, probably he didn't, or so on. Um, that's that's a whole other issue. But here we're looking at at least some of the things should should seem familiar to us and sort of ring a, strike a chord with us and we can see how maybe we're lacking in some of these things. Most of the things have to do with the Lord Buddha's wisdom. And the first the first quality of the Buddha uh, is that he was uh, an arahang, that he was um, we say worthy in English we always translate it as worthy. But actually, the word arahang can mean many different things. If we were, if we translate it worthy, it means he's uh, worthy of our homage. So this is really just a simple um, sort of repeating what I've been saying. It doesn't really explain anything new. But arahang also means many different things. Uh, here we say arahang means that he, uh, when he's far from his, uh, far from the enemies, uh, adi. Uh, or Ariya, I don't remember how it goes. Arahang means he's um, he has no evil inside. He has no defilements left over. That the Lord Buddha was pure. Um, but in English, we generally just translate it as worthy. So we can go on to the next one. Arahang Samma Sambuto, that he was perfectly self-awakened. Uh, the Lord Buddha was enlightened for himself. It means he didn't have a teacher. So the wonderful thing about the, the Buddha is that all of the things that we're learning here in our meditation practice, he was able to understand them for himself. himself. And I think this is <clears throat> this is uh, hard to dispute. And it's hard to say that you know perhaps the Buddha had a teacher who taught this sort of the same thing, because it's clear that there's no um, there's no one else even at the time who was teaching the same thing as the Lord Buddha. 
and later on no one in any other cultures has been able to come up with such a systematic um, path or way of, of uh, practice which leads so clearly to the results which it, um, it claims to. So this is the wonderful thing about the Buddha is that you know all of these things that we would have never thought of ourselves that seems so obvious but you know we could have never you know broken down reality and say okay these are the four foundations of mindfulness and what we have to do is uh, set our minds straight about them and understand the three characteristics and so on he, he learned all this for himself all of us are here we're relying very much on a system and a lineage of teachers so we kind of are really thankful that the Buddha was able to to uh, do this for himself and was able to uh, start something basically from scratch. This is one of the great qualities of the Buddha that we we, we try to think about and we try to remember. And the second is, or the third, now we're at the third, Sama Samputo Arahang Sama Samputo Vicha Jarana Sampano that he was uh, complete or perfect in both uh, his knowledge and his conduct. And this is a very important uh, quality of anyone who practices meditation. Knowledge means the understanding of uh, how to practice, the understanding of things like the four foundations of mindfulness, the understanding of morality, the understanding of concentration, the understanding of wisdom, uh, the understanding of good things, the understanding of bad things. But it's a whole other thing to then practice accordingly. And so this is something that we we see as a, is, uh, one of the cardinal virtues in Buddhism is to be both knowledgeable and practice according to that knowledge. You know, understand what is right and what is wrong, what is good, what is bad what is important, what is not important, and then act accordingly. Because there may be some people, out there, some teachers out there or leaders out there who claim to know this or know that or who teach this or teach that, but they themselves can't practice accordingly. You know, oftentimes you have these high teachings which tell you to do this or do that, and then in the end you can see that the, the result is not, uh, it's not as expected. The, the person themselves doesn't know uh, what is the result or doesn't uh, doesn't understand the right way to get the results which are expected and so they teach something and they say it leads to this or to that but they themselves don't practice it or, or aren't able to achieve the state which they claim to or which they they uh, which they offer and this is often the case in people who have passed down the Lord Buddha's teaching that we we have to admit that we we know a lot about the Buddha's teaching, but we ourselves are still practicing it. There are still many things that we don't know. Even arahants, in the time of the Buddha, there were, there were monks who let go of everything, but they still had to study and they, in order to be able to teach others, in order to be able to answer questions. There were still many things that they didn't know that they had to still study on and on and on. It doesn't mean that they were still uh, lacking in, in, you know, they still weren't were holding on to something. It just means that... Uh, there were things that they didn't know. They were perfect in, uh, perfect, well, you could say perfect in conduct, but not perfect in, in knowledge. Nowadays, we have what we have are people who are perfect in, are very good in knowledge. Some people who even understand, who even know all of the Lord Buddha's teaching have memorized it. You know, and if you ask them anything about Buddhism from start to finish, they can give you an answer. But then you can see that they themselves may, not, may or may not practice it. This is really important in anything. So it's important when we teach other people, if we teach our children, when we have students, when we teach other people. I've seen people come and uh, you know, drag their friends in to practice meditation, and then you look at them and they've never practiced themselves. Or they themselves are only, uh, only beginning to practice, and then they're dragging everyone else into practice to the point that they themselves don't have time to practice, or so on. Uh, and this is this is uh, it's, it's very important that we ourselves gain an understanding of the teaching. People go out and teach Buddhism when they themselves are not by any mean, meaning of the word enlightened, and so on. So this is an important quality. This is something we say the Buddha had. 
that he had knowledge, he taught. If you look at his teachings, it's very clear that he knew what he was talking about. And it's also very clear that he practiced it. He claimed ever and again to that this wasn't something that he had just uh, thought up and, you know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. He claimed that he, um, he, he knew this to be true. He had realized this through, ex, uh, through empirical investigation. And we find that as we practice his teachings, that actually it's, it's exactly that, that everything the Lord Buddha said slowly, slowly comes to be. And so this is one great thing we, we think of about the Buddha, and it's something that we hold up in our minds to be a very important quality. See, it's important that we, we think of the Buddha sometimes, not just uh, worship or reverence or something. But when we think of this, it, it helps us understand the practice where we're going. And it, it's one way of helping us understand Buddhism for people who have, have little or no knowledge of the Buddhist and Buddhist religion. So after Vijayacharana Sampano, Sukato is the next one. Sukato means the Lord Buddha has gone in a good way. So some people ask, where is the Buddha? Is he up in heaven? Or you know, are we praying to the Buddha, hoping that he he comes down and gives us something? Well, I've seen it's actually funny how many different views there are on this. There are actually people out there who believe that there's someone called the God Buddha. And I've read books in in Thailand called where they describe the God Buddha. And he's some god up in heaven, and he's you know got all these people down on earth who are you know he's instructing and they're making a lot of money <laughs> you know this is how it goes you know apparently God Buddha likes likes his followers to be rich <laughs> likes us all to give them money but no the Buddha went uh, went beyond heaven he went inward he went inside. And inside is is uh, something infinite, something which doesn't isn't born, doesn't get old, doesn't get sick, and doesn't die. As we go inward and we look inside ourselves, we find that we come back to the present moment. We come back to ultimate reality, and we come to realize for ourselves freedom, which is not like we get to go somewhere else where we don't have to be trapped here anymore. Uh, it's a freedom within. It's a freedom which lets go of the whole outside world, allows us to just be here uh, and now, which is one way of putting it. It means there's no more uh, arising, no more, um, no more chasing after things, no more going outside. So we say the Lord Buddha went, sukato, gato means he went so well, he's gone well or he's gone in a good way. Well, it can mean many things. First, we can mean that, well, he left behind many, many things which were no good. Like he left behind anger, he left behind greed, he left behind delusion, ignorance, uh, conceit, or views, opinions, all sorts of things. He left behind. So he's gone from these things. He's left these things behind, and good for him. You know, this is good for anyone. It would be good if we followed him. You know, this is part of what the meaning of Sukato is, is we're followers of the Sukato, the one who's gone in a good good way. Uh, just like when you see someone living their life in a good way and you think, gee, I should be more like that guy. So this is someone who we can think of. When we look at the Buddha, we think of him as someone who went in a good way. If there's anybody who's in a good way, it's the Lord Buddha, because he left behind all of these things. He never had any anger once he realized the truth which he realized there was no anger which arose and no greed either no wanting for this or wanting for that and the reason these things didn't arise because there was no delusion no misunderstanding of things the only, the only reason anger arises is because we misunderstand that somehow we're confused and we think that somehow anger is going to give us what we want it's going to do something for us and so this is why we have war this is why we have Conflict. This is why we have so many of the evils which exist in the world. And greed as well. He realized that uh, the, the reason why he had no greed was because he realized that the only reason, or he realized that greed was um, something which arises because we misunderstand. It's something which leads us to suffering. When we want something, okay, so yeah, we can get it. But when getting it doesn't get rid of the wanting. In fact, it reaffirms the wanting. And this can be 
verified on scientific terms as well. They have studies on this and they understand how the chemicals work in the brain. It's actually very clear that the more you get what you want, the more you want things. And it's also very clear that you can't always get what you want. So guess what happens as you reaffirm the wanting? You're setting yourself up for a big fall. And he realized this. And so they say, wow, he, he's in a good way. You know, having realized that, he's not setting, ever setting himself up for a fall. And so you know, we think of good role models. And I always think of monks as being good role models. And that's part of um, how I look at being a monk and why some of the things I do may, might seem odd to some people, I suppose. Sometimes you look at monks as we understand them, maybe in another in the Christian tradition or so on. And then you look at, at how uh, certain Buddhist monks behave, and sometimes it seems quite odd as to why we walk barefoot and why we um, you know, wear the same robes all the time and so on. We're, we're trying to live our lives in a way um, which emulates the Lord Buddha's example. I mean, the Lord Buddha was the best example of this. He walked barefoot all around India. They were thinking that he had to wear shoes. He wore the same robes all the time, and they were just rags. And when they wore out, he would patch them. If they wore it entirely, he would sew a new one, collect rags and sew a new robe, take parts of the old one, put it together, and whatever's useful, use that. As you walk around, you see people have thrown away pieces of cloth. You pick that up and use it. Maybe it was a cloth they used to wrap up a corpse. Maybe it was a cloth, cloth they used to clean up blood. It could have been anything. And once you clean it, it's simply a cloth. And he walked around India taking only alms food. So whatever food there was available when people give out, sometimes they would give out meals to poor people. I mean, um, you know, the, 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 the idea wasn't that the Lord Buddha was some some high and mighty person uh, on an on a on a societal level. I mean, the idea of becoming a monk, or or even more, to become enlightened or to become a Buddha, is that you give up all of these things. That you 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 have the ultimate humility, where you you have no expectations or no pride. You know, people say, "Have you no pride?" Well, in some ways, no. We we practice to have no pride, and so we go and we receive whatever gifts. Um, whatever handouts are given, I guess, is the best word. Because in India, of course, there was a tradition to give handouts to um, either to beggars or to uh, people who were seeking the truth, people who had left the home life. It was a tradition. In some ways, that tradition exists even nowadays in the West. And it's very easily, easily adapted to uh, the Buddhist way of life. Buddhist monk way of life and there are actually many monks who do go on alms round and western people do put food in their bowl um, because it's of course not a difficult thing to do but the idea here is that there's uh, a humility and a just accepting of something or nothing if one gets nothing one gets nothing so we say the Lord Buddha Sukato that he, he, he went in a, a good way or he was on, on the right path. He had given up all of these uh, likes and dislikes and misunderstandings. The next one is Lokavitu. The Lord Buddha was someone who understood all of the worlds. Lokavitu, you could translate it as one who knows. Vitu means one who knows, knows clearly or knows in a special way. Loka, it could mean just one world. But here it means all the worlds. Because in Buddhism we recognize many different worlds. And it's not like the planets or aliens or extraterrestrials or so on. There's not really um, a big talk about extraterrestrials in Buddhism. I don't think there's um, a confirmation or denial of the existence of extraterrestrials. Sort of like science nowadays, we're not sure. Although it does seem likely, you know, given the size of the universe and so on. But here we're talking about worlds on different levels. For instance, the, 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 the most common way of, of um, splitting out the different worlds is the first one is the world of ultimate realities, or the world of, of uh, we say, sankaras, the world of formations. We could say the world of things, the world of... Uh, 
things that are arisen and things that cease, things that come into being and things which, which disappear, like the four elements. In Buddhism, all of matter, we say, can be, can be split up into the four elements. This is where the Greeks got it. This is where we hear about these four elements. It actually, as far as I understand, it comes from Buddhism. And this is something which science has discarded long ago as being, you know, old school, as being, you know, some kind of very simplistic and, uh, you know, simple-minded way of looking at the world. And in fact, it's the truth. It's, it's all of reality. Instead of looking through microscopes and seeing cells and subatomic particles and so on, all of reality we can be split up, all of physical reality we can be split up into four parts. So this is one way of looking at the world, is, is the world of, of things like matter or, or all of the mental things, feelings, memories, uh, thoughts, uh, consciousness, all of the things which arise and, and cease, all the things which come and go. And this, if we're, not, if we're not meditating, we can't really understand because we still look at things from a scientific point of view, a three-dimensional point of view. When we close our eyes, we start to see these things. In the beginning, we can't even see the arising or the ceasing. We just see things. For instance, there might be a feeling of our body touching the floor uh, or touching the chair. There might be pain in this part or that part of the body. As we start to meditate, we see these things are just coming and going, coming and going, and we are able to break them up into pieces. So this is one world. This is one uh, universe, you could say. The second universe is the universe of beings. And this is sort of uh, separating the universe up into beings because if you look at immaterial things or um, what do you call uh, things which have no mind, when you look at a cup or um, uh, a stone or a tree or something, all of these things are in the end they can be divided up into people's experience of them or being the experience of beings. Like the old question: If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Well, in one sense it does, but in this sense, um, the sound is, requires a human being, a, a being of some sort to experience it. So we can separate the whole of the universe up into beings, and then we were able to um, talk about you know beings like animals, or then beings like humans, and, then, and beings which um, most of us probably don't believe in, angels, gods. Actually, many people do believe in these things, but most of us haven't seen them, so we'll say it's a maybe. The Lord Buddha understood about all of these beings. He understood about how beings, how you come to be born as an animal, how you become to be born as a human, and I've given a talk on this before, so I'll try not to go into too much detail about that, but it has to do with the things you do. The Lord Buddha saw that beings are born as animals. When we die, we can be born as an animal, simply because we're not interested in higher higher uh, wisdom or understanding. We let our minds degrade, you know, simply thinking about sleeping, eating, uh, finding sensual pleasures, and don't ever think about developing our minds. So our minds kind of become rotten, and we become, you know, people who drink a lot of alcohol, people who take drugs, people who, who turn their mind into mush, basically. You know, are not interested in being aware, being alert, being uh, awake. We're more interested in being asleep than being awake. This is the path which leads us to be born as animals, and so on and so on. When you talk about hell in Buddhism, we say, why do people go to hell? It's not permanent, but why you go there is because of anger. People are full of hatred, they go to hell for a while. I mean, you can even see it in their faces on this plane. You know, they look like they're in hell already and so on and so on. Why we go to heaven, we have good minds, and so on. So Lord Buddha understood about these things. He understood about the sankharas, the one I said first. What he understood about um, sankhara, the formations, like the body and the mind, is he understood in the end it was all impermanent. He understood that it was unsatisfying, that there's no one thing in this world that you can pick it to be satisfying. Why? Because it's impermanent. It arises and it ceases. When we sit in meditation, this is what we're trying to understand. Sometimes we can appreciate it from a, an intellectual level. We say, you know, let it go, it's gone. You know, why are you still holding on to it? But we don't get it intellectually. You know, we still somehow um, aren't able to accept 
you know, it's really kind of stupid, really. You know, why you'd mourn for something when it's gone? And, you know, tonight um, my mother sent me a package and it didn't get delivered and it's going to be delivered on Tuesday. So she's all upset about it. And I, you know, it, it is the way it is. It's coming on Tuesday. I mean, there's no problem. It's coming then. That's, that's the reality of it. But we, we have trouble with this because of our, our inability to understand or because we haven't trained ourselves. So we understand intellectually that yes, yes, it has to be this way. There's no changing it. But we're still upset by it. It's really kind of ridiculous, isn't it? It, it shows what? It shows that the mind is, is untrained. The mind is faulty. It's like a faulty circuit. It's just short-circuiting. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. I mean, you're supposed to say, okay, it's coming on Tuesday. Great, coming on Tuesday. Now I know. But instead we say, oh no, coming on Tuesday. Oh, why isn't it coming today? And It's just like a short circuit. The Lord Buddha understood all of these things, and this is what he taught. He understood that there's, you know, things are impermanent, they're unsatisfying. You, know, you can't hold on to them, that they're going to always be the way you want. And you can't control them. The other world that he understood was the world of, of space. But we'll not go into this one. The other world is the world as we understand it, as we don't, you know, Star Trek and so on, and Einstein and the Big Bang and everything. Let's, let's just take it as science understands it, and we say the Lord Buddha, he understood many of these things. In fact, it's interesting. It is interesting to talk about that. You know, there's, there's still... They were debating for a while about whether there would be a big crunch. What would the end of the universe be like? Would it just keep expanding, or is it eventually going to contract again? And I think they came to the realization that it's just going to keep expanding. Well, the Lord Buddha had a little bit of a different understanding, so we'll have to wait and see who was right. But the Lord Buddha explained the Big Bang. You know, it's interesting how if you if you look at the Buddha's teaching, how it's... Now, maybe not. Maybe he didn't go quite so far, okay? I, I won't give him that much credit, but it's interesting how he taught how the world expanded, and then there was this earth, and then it slowly turned and formed a crust, uh, and eventually there were people, there were beings, and then people, and so on, and this, uh, this evolution... But he also taught before the Big Bang, and he taught about the expansion and contraction of, of the universe. And this is a big thing in India. He wasn't the only one, in fact. It's a big thing. They talk about these things in India. But the Lord Buddha was very able to uh, explain it in a way that was um, well, it can be seen to be very similar to the way well, we explain things from a scientific point of view. So the Lord Buddha was someone who understood this. And a lot of how he understood this was his ability to remember the past. You know, we're not able to remember very far back because our mind has been squeezed into this human body. But there are levels of, of existence which are much more simple and much more, you know, uh, how do you say, much easier to understand. Like the human body is actually very, from a, from a Buddhist point of view, it's very hard to understand why you come to this body. It's a very... Um, very complex structure and why we had to be born with you know, two hands, two feet and so on and from, un from science's point of view we evolved like this but wow, it's such a complex I mean, we can understand how it came about but it, it, it's such a specific squeezed into this, this little body you know, why aren't we just gods you know, floating through the universe or so on and in fact these sorts of beings exist and, and the Buddha was able to remember back to the point of where his mind was in that state of just being and he was able to watch and see the universe form and so on so this is part of where his understanding came from but again it simply comes from getting down to the building blocks and letting go of this idea that I am a human being and I was born and before that there was nothing and so on and just getting over this the uh, limitations of the human experience because we let go of the idea of being human and we come back to see just the mind so we're able to take the mind back and back and back into the past we understand more about memory what is the truth of memory and how you can evoke past memories as you uh, train your mind and so on <clears throat> so this is another thing lokavitu sukato lokavitu anuttaro purisatamasarati Actually, you can split this up into two, I believe. Anuttaro, you could say the Buddha was unexcelled. You know, Anuttaro, there's nobody better than him. But they generally put it as one. Anuttaro Purisatama Sarati. Means he was able to train 
be, human beings uh, he was able to train beings uh, in a way that nobody else was able to do well, at the Buddha's time the Buddha went and he had teachers but when it came down to it they weren't able to explain to him the things he needed to know they weren't able to give him the understanding about the world about uh, the three characteristics of impermanence suffering and non-self they weren't able to understand teach him about reality and as a result he and all of the other students and even the teachers they were unable to do away they weren't able to train their minds in the in the sense of uh, creating understanding and giving up these uh, these defilements of, of mind the best they could do is cover them up and so all the meditations which they had at the time were ways of running away escaping covering up creating high states of concentration where you feel powerful and good and peaceful all the time which is just basically running away from all of these bad things which we don't want to see we don't want to feel even bad sensations in the body we want to run away so the Lord Buddha was able to train people and this is one thing that people really see when they come to practice meditation they get this idea of training because as you go through it you can see that you're really you're training yourself and it's amazing how when you have a teacher who's following the Buddha's teaching is explaining according to the Buddha's teaching how how they are training you and really they are like a trainer and so this is all we're doing as a, as a teacher we're, we're training you we're giving you um, tools and uh, giving you skills and leading you through this course of training and it's something that people always remark when they when they come and they find a teacher and they follow the teacher's advice that wow the teacher is really an excellent trainer but actually all we're doing is following the Lord Buddha's uh, um, Lord Buddha's method the Lord Buddha's example because the Lord Buddha was the best trainer of, of beings and the next one, Purisatama Sarati Satta Deva Manusanang Satta Satta Deva Manusanang is the 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 teacher. The Lord Buddha is the teacher, so he taught both gods and men. That's how they translate. Deva means angels. Uh, Manusa means uh, human being, mankind, or or humankind. And this is just an understanding that Lord Buddha taught everyone. So he even taught angels, he even taught gods, he taught all sorts of beings. He even taught animals to the extent that they were able to understand. They were able to gain good uh, states of mind as a result. But this is sort of a funny, sort of a funny thing. You know, people, you know, often they look at it with a lot of skepticism. Yeah, angels, yeah, God, and so on. But it's kind of funny to think of how you know most of the other religious people in the world are, are worshipping God and saying yeah, God, God is going to help me and so on well the truth is that you know, the, the, the Buddha had to go around teaching even the angels and the gods and then you know, as we can see God's not doing a heck of a lot for, for the world you know, people say this or that that actually he's, you know, he's working in mysterious ways or something I just think you know, he's not responsible for the problems we're in and he's not going to give us the solution we're responsible for the problems so we've got to come up with a solution uh, but you know when we look at these people and they're, they're worshiping and they're saying all this and you know, in the end it's clear that God you know he doesn't have all the answers and he's not going to give us all the solutions and what the Buddha did is he even went to angels living up in heaven he went to gods in these nebulous realms and he was able to dispel a lot of their their delusions like they say about God actually he does think he created the universe or he did, or I don't know, there are many gods that think they created the universe. It's sort of a delusion of, of many of these celestial beings. And how it works, there's, a, there's an explanation of why it happened. It has to do with, you know, they watch the universe form, and it's sort of like, gee, they wish that it would, do, it would be like this or like that. And it slowly evolved, and they started to think that, gee, maybe I'm responsible for all that. And maybe I'm eternal, and so on. And they can't remember back to when they were born a, a god, and so on. So the Lord Buddha was a teacher of even gods and angels and human beings. So this is just another uh, of the Lord Buddha's attributes. So what do we have? We have Satta Deva Manusanang Buddho Bhakava Buddho Buddho. So he's the Buddha. So what does the Buddha mean? The word Buddha means 
at least three different things. It means that he he's the one who knew. It means he's the one who is awake. And it means the one who uh, has bloomed, I believe is the third one, who has, has become enlightened. Let's put it this way. So the Lord Buddha knew. What did he know? He knew the truth. He knew the four noble truths. And in fact, we say he knew everything. He came to know everything, to understand all of reality. The second thing, he became awake, which means uh, the way we look at it, most of us are asleep. And so what we're trying to do when we follow the Buddha, we're actually trying to become awake. We're trying to wake up, get out of our stupor. You know, we see these people doing the same stupid things over and over and over again because they're addicted to this or that, uh, because they're um, stuck in this cycle of hatred, stuck in the cycle of violence, stuck in this cycle of self-pity, or stuck in worry, or doubt, or fear, or, or so on, all of these different cycles. What we're trying to do is wake up, you know, snap out of it. And finally, the, the last one, we, let's just say, the, it's the other meaning of the word enlightenment. Uh, the first meaning of the word enlightenment is to understand, so this we have already. The other meaning is to become lighter. The Lord Buddha was a Buddha because he, he, was, he became uh, free of the burden, free of the burden of, of evil and the burden of suffering, that he became free of this burden of uh, guilt or of um, needing or an addiction which we all carry around with us. You know, we need all these things so we have to work so hard to get them and so hard to keep them. And if we didn't need all of these things, we'd be free of this uh, amount of suffering. And the last one is bhakava, the last part of what it means to be a Buddha or the, the qualities of a Buddha. Bhagava means uh, one who is blessed, one who is lucky. Or it can also be analyzed to mean one who separates uh, things up into sections and parts and so on. Bhagga means part. The, what the word probably means, because it was used before the Buddha time, what it was actually originally designed to mean means one who gets a portion of all your stuff. And this is the Lord, you know, in feudal times, there were lords, and they got a part of your stuff. <laughs> so it became to be a term that they used for anybody big who collected taxes or who was a lord. And it was eventually used in religious circles where it meant, you know, you give a tithe, you give a part of your salary to, to church or to the priests and so on. So in India, they used the word Bhagawa to mean this. It also eventually came to mean the the you know the god or so on god krishna or uh, or so on so they used it for the buddha because they said well now this is the guy who we're going to follow and so they gave him this appellation but as with everything in buddhism we always twist the meaning of the word and give it a new meaning to suit our needs because all of these words are are used for such different um, such different philosophies or so on that we, we make it to mean that the Lord Buddha was simply someone who cut things up into parts and he, he, he had everything into pieces so he could analyze things. You know, you look at the being and you say, this is me. Just like you look at a cart and you say, it's a, a wagon. You look at a wagon, you say, it's a wagon. But actually, when you look at it, there's actually no wagon there at all. You, know, you break it up into parts and, and you can't find the wagon at all. You can't find it in the wheels. You can't find it in the, in the steering. You can't find it in the... You know, the, the walls or the floor or whatever parts of the wagon, the roof of the wagon. You've just got all these parts and pieces. So Lord Buddha was able to do that, do this with the, the individual to help us to let go of this idea that this is me and this is mine in, in some way. And because he was lucky and because he was blessed, it was just special. This is the meaning of the word bhakava. So this is all about the Buddha. And I think we're almost at a time... It's funny because if I were going to talk all about the Dhamma and the Sangha, it would take three, four hours, which is about how long a good Dhamma talk should last. But here we're, again, we're, we're not here just to learn about Buddhism. We're also here to practice. So I'm going to go fairly quickly through it. It's, it's not important to go through all of the uh, qualities of the Dhamma and the Sangha. The Dhamma has really only a few important qualities, and that is that 
you don't have to believe what is being said. You have to believe to the extent where, okay, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and I'll try it. Because the Dhamma, what the Lord Buddha taught, it gives you results as you practice it. Anyone who practices the Buddha's teaching, you don't have to believe what is being said. You don't have to believe me that there are angels and gods. You don't have to believe me that we can remember past lives or so on. There's actually a way, if you wanted to, you could find these things out for yourselves. You don't have to believe me that um, giving up greed and anger are a, bad, are a good thing. It's good to give them up. You don't have to believe me that it's possible. You don't have to believe me in any of these things. If you hear me say this, you can say, okay, well, prove it to me. And I can say, I can prove it to you. I mean, I can have you prove it to yourself. You close your eyes, you do what I tell you, follow this meditation practice, and you, for yourself, will come to realize these things. It might take a long time, but at the moment you start practicing, you start to realize that basically everything I'm saying makes sense. And the Lord Buddha's teaching is opanayiko, it leads you slowly on. It's not like you close your eyes for a second and suddenly, boom, you're enlightened. But as you practice, you know, it just leads you in further and further. And you realize, oh my God. It, and it just keeps going and going and going and going until finally you, you realize, you, you come to the end of it. But it's not something you have to wait to the end to understand. It slowly, slowly leads you to uh, an under, a gradual understanding, they say. And it's uh, very quick to, it's nothing to do with time and so on. This is the great thing about the Buddha's teaching, is that you don't have to believe it, and you don't have to uh, believe me. You practice it, and you get you see reality. Whatever that is, is, is that's the truth. All we're ta doing here is looking and learning and coming to understand reality. This, this is important to understand. This is what it means to understand the, the Dhamma. And this is uh, why we think about the Dhamma, why we keep it in mind, you know, we're not here to believe and we're not here to hold on. Yeah. We're here to understand and to keep going deeper and deeper. And whatever we do understand for ourselves, we take that to be a good step, but not the ultimate uh, realization. So as we go, we'll understand more and more about ourselves and we're able to let go of more and more, but we keep going. And this is something that we keep in mind, that we have to keep going and what is the ultimate goal? It's ultimately freedom from greed, anger, and delusion. If we're not there yet, we have to keep asking ourselves, do we still have greed? Do we still have anger? Do we still have delusion? Confusion, misunderstanding, conceit, and so on. Yes, then we have to keep going. And this is what it means to think about the Dhamma. And to think about the Sangha is to sort of think about what sort of people we expect to be through the practice. And basically the, the Sangha the best, the, the clearest quality of the Sangha is that they are good, that they practice well. Supatipano, uh, they practice well. What does it mean they practice well? It means they everything they do, or as they practice more and more things they do, are good things. That they no longer do bad things or say bad things that they used to do or they used to say, and they no longer think bad things. They no longer think how to hurt other people, how to get the better of other people, how to get more and more and more and accumulate more and more and more of things they don't need, and so on. They're able to do away with all of these bad things. So we say they practice well. They practice upright. means they're not crooked. They're not cheating. They're not lying to themselves or other people. They're able to tell the truth to themselves and they're able to give the truth to other people. Uh, they practice. They practice on the right path. Uh, they don't. They aren't. They're practicing on a path which leads them. See what we're the, the what we mean. The path we're following here is a path which goes in the right direction. So what we can see as we practice is that oh yeah, this is this is a good thing, and we practice more. We say, gee, this really is a good thing, and this is really doing something for me. This is what it means they practice the right path. Because there are many paths which are the wrong path, and you practice them and you just feel worse and worse and worse as you go, and you fall deeper and deeper and deeper into suffering. 
<laughs> some people say this about our practice because, yeah, sometimes it can be a lot of suffering. But all this means is, you know, we're holding on. When we come here to practice, we see that we're holding on until we can finally be, you know, let go of how stubborn we are and, and finally stop being so stubborn and holding on. Yeah, we're going to suffer. But this is just because we're holding on. And, and as we see it, that we're holding on and we see how much suffering it is, then we let go. And once we see this, then we see how good it is for us. And that actually, yeah, this is really useful. Until that point, often people do say, you know, this sucks. This is just a lot of suffering. It's just worse and worse and worse. I thought I came here to let go of suffering. And all you give me is more and more suffering. Well, we don't give you the suffering. You bring it on yourself. And as you practice, you slowly, slowly realize that. And you realize how much suffering. In fact, you, you really get a very deep, and often scary understanding of how much suffering we're inflicting on ourselves and how much suffering are these things which we're holding on to to the point where we really have to rethink how we live our lives not because we're being brainwashed but you know it really is that way it really is you know this kind of a scary thing where maybe we're not suffering yet but man we're setting ourselves up for something the and the final one is that they practice appropriately so the great thing about people who are enlightened is everything they do is kind of, you know, good. You know, it's always the right thing at the right time. They don't just say things uh, because they want to say them or, or off the cuff or without thinking. They do things appropriately. You know, they do things well. And they tend to be uh, noble and honorable, worthy of respect. When we practice meditation, we, we, we become worthy of respect where people don't have to look at us and think, oh, here he comes again. Or so I don't know, maybe people think that when they see me coming for a long talk, but here he goes again. But as we practice, we come to understand what is appropriate and we come to uh, be able to uh, act and speak in an appropriate manner. Being able to, because we're mindful and we're able to see the reality in front of us for what it is. So we react, we speak, and we, we do things appropriately, kind of like we're in tune with reality. You know, we don't just talk and talk and talk for hours without looking at the time, for instance. So not to say anything great about myself, but sort of as an example, when we practice, we understand what is suitable and what is not suitable. And this is hopefully where we're headed, that we can slowly, slowly learn. Um, because we're here. You know, Everywhere we go, we're always here. It's not like when we go somewhere, our mind is somewhere else. When we're practicing meditation, we're always here. So when we do something wrong, we know it. We're quite aware of what the consequences of our actions are. We did something pretty bad right there. You know, and that was something we shouldn't do again. Like someone told me that they were sitting in meditation, someone was loud, and they went and told them to stop. And they were a little bit upset about it. So they were kind of maybe angry when they said it. When they came back, they realized right away what a, what a bad thing it was they'd done. And in fact, it's such a silly little thing. Whereas most of us would be like, yeah, good for you. Go get them. Tell, tell them what's what. But when we practice meditation, we see deeper than that. And we can see what we, that what we did didn't, didn't make us a better person, a happier person. It didn't make those people happier. In fact, you know, maybe they had something important to talk about. And we realize this. And we come to see what is right and what is wrong. This is what it means to be the Sangha, the, the followers of the Lord Buddha. This is what we're aiming for. So this is a very brief... Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think you could ever go through all of the good things about the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. But the idea here is to sort of get an overview of you know, who is the Buddha and what was it he taught and, and uh, you know, uh, what, is it, what, is it ha what happens when you follow his teaching. So I'll give you a little bit of understanding here. An hour is, of course, very little time to do so. But uh, the, the wish that I have is, of course, to have everyone feel good about their meditation practice, help to adjust your meditation practice, and to invite people who haven't started practicing to sort of think about why it might be good for them to start. I mean, it's not good for me that you come to practice. I don't get anything out of it. I'm doing this all simply because people ask me to, to teach. But really, I know it's good for me, and I know it's good for anyone who tries it because it's, I'm not pushing anything on you. You're just looking at yourself, learning about yourself. So I say, gee, it would be great for you if you did this. Um, I'm not going to push you, but uh, you know, for people who haven't started practicing, who have just begun to practice, I hope this is some kind of encouragement to 
keep it up. There's nothing bad or nothing. Uh, we're not trying to convert people or, or uh, pull people into anything. You know, you practice meditation, you learn more about yourself. It's one of the most important things we can do because it's a training of the mind. You know, it's taking this mind, which is for most of us is mush. It's it's really just you know following after everything we want and getting angry about the things we don't like and so on. Or maybe it's different levels of mush. Some people are able to keep their the lid on it better than others. But this is training our minds out of so many of our our bad habits and our addictions and our our, our suffering. So in the end, we become finer tuned, just like a car where we tune the car to become uh, to run better and to run smoother and so on. And so our life as a result runs smoother, runs clearer and is more peaceful and harmonious and free from suffering. So this is all I have to say and I wish for everyone to uh, be able to continue in their practice and gain benefits from the practice and I hope that all of you are able to find peace happiness and freedom from suffering. Thank you for coming and have a good night.